Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, having really seen your word displayed in the Lord's Supper. We have seen visible reminders of what you have purposed in salvation, namely that you reached down to us in love and in grace to rescue us. And you did that through the bodily sacrifice and through the atoning blood of your Son. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. And so now that we have sung your word and seen your word and we now want to listen to your word, we pray that your spirit, as we do that, would grant us understanding. And we pray that as we listen and as we perceive who it is that you are and what it is that you have done, that all of this will redound to you in songs and expressions of praise. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the main point of the Lord's Supper is that it helps us to remember, just as I talk to the children about, as we see and as we feel and as we taste the elements of the Lord's Supper, it helps us recall the price that was paid for our redemption, and it helps us recall it in a tangible sort of way as we eat and drink those representations of Christ's body and of Christ's blood. Well, another way that God has helped us with our memories is through singing. In that way, singing is also a kind gift of God to his church. God has designed singing like the Lord's Supper to help us remember, to help us recall, to give us better recall. The truth is that you will likely forget most of what I say when I preach. The preaching of the word is also one of God's kind gifts, and God has designed his church so that you will learn about him and so that you will know the truth and be fortified in your faith through the steady preaching of God's word, line upon line, precept upon precept, so that you might be equipped, Paul writes Timothy, for every good work. As you listen to the word of God week after week, you will start to remember how to frame God's word, how it all fits together, is what we pray, and that it will become embedded into your being and into your life as you try to live as a believer in this world. But God has wired your brain, God has maybe rewired your redeemed brain, so that it's the singing of the church that really gets etched into your memory. There's something about um, the rhythm of the words, the structure of the lines, the poetry of the words, that when they are put to music and sung by a congregation over a long period of time, that gets imprinted into your brain. It's like that for all songs, whether secular or spiritual, but God has so designed his church so that they would remember his works, so that they would remember who he is by providing us with a collection of what we might call the Lord's songs. So the singing of God's people is an important part of what God uses to help us remember who he is, help us remember what he's done. And as such, it's an important part of the worship of God's people when they gather. And not, only, not the only part, but a very important part of the entire worship service. So singing is included in that. And in his amazing wisdom, 
God has put an entire songbook in the middle of his word. We call it the Psalms, which is a collection, a hymn book of 150 songs. The new thing these days in collecting music, if you have um, digital collections, is something called a playlist. You can take a device and you can combine all of your favorite songs onto a playlist. You can even make one for each mood that you're in. You can make one for each season of the year. You can make one for each style of music. Pretty much whatever you want. And so last week, as I did the first in these series, I called the Psalms God's Playlist. As an aside, it's interesting that the Psalms are actually not handed down to us with music, with notation. We just have the lyrics. So for one thing, that tells us that we have freedom in how we sing the songs, but it also tells us that the content of the songs are most important. And the structure and the poetry and the parallel lines together with the words is what makes them ultimately memorable. So, the Psalms are the Lord's songs. God has been so kind to raise up people to write other songs that the church can sing, like the ones that we've been singing this morning, beautiful songs, songs full of truth. But it's the Lord's inspired songs that we've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks, and we'll end with next week with Thanksgiving. Just looking at three psalms at the end of that collection. Last week we looked at Psalm 137, and in there it asked a question which we've taken as the name of this series. That question was, how shall we sing the Lord's song? Psalm 137 showed how God's people can sing even though they find themselves in a strange land. They can sing songs of lament. They can sing songs of hope even while they weep. And Psalm 37 turns out to be an example of exactly that. It, in time, became one of the Lord's songs. A song of hope sung in an attitude and during a time and using a tune, probably, of weeping. It was likely sung in a minor key. Well, this week we want to move back to Psalms, to Psalm 135, and next week for Thanksgiving we'll land right in the middle, Psalm 136. So we're about to find out in Psalm 135 that God's people ought to sing the Lord's songs Not just with weeping and lamenting and with hope, but also with praise. So you can turn there if you haven't already. Psalm 135. If you're using the Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you that Pastor Andrew referred to earlier, this is on page 519 and 520. As you get there, I just encourage you to take a look at the very first words of Psalm 135 and the very last words of the psalm. You should see there, I think, I hope all the translations are the same. You should see the words, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Or in Hebrew, in the original, the words are familiar to you. Hallelujah. That's what it is in Hebrew. Now you know Hebrew. Just say hallelujah. So this is a song of praise to the Lord. Praise to Yahweh. Covenant God. And just one other note, by way of introduction, this psalm is actually a compilation. It, 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 if we had time, I could show you how this psalm takes different parts of other psalms and, 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 and puts them together, compiles them together into one. And I only mention that because that might be one indication that the scriptures are adequate for providing the content of our songs. 
The scriptures are adequate for providing the content of our songs. Our singing should be always centered on the truths of God's word. And, of course, on God himself. And that's exactly what this psalm is doing. It's encouraging the people of God, believers, the church, is what it became. Here it was just Israel, became the church to worship. How? By setting before us truths about who God is and truths about what God has done for us. This psalm kind of announces, sort of lays before us all the wonders to the congregation of God. All the wonders of God to the congregation and then expects a response of praise from the congregation and from his people, the congregation of the people of God, the gathered group, the community of God's people. So let's look at Psalm 135, and for this morning, I usually just kind of read the whole section that we're looking at. This time I just want to read section by section, or in the parlance of songs, maybe verse by verse. Um, the Bible's divided up into verses, but I'm going to take those verses and put them into sections that we could po- call song verses, if you'd like. And, uh, and then I'll just make a few comments on each of those. So let's start with verses 1 to 4. Praise is really the highlight, you'll see, of those first four verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. What do we praise? The name of the Lord. Who is being encouraged here to praise the Lord? The servants of the Lord. All God's people. And where does this praise take place? Verse 2, they're standing in the house of the Lord or in the courts of the Lord. It's a great picture. He's encouraging God's people to come together. And when they come together, they should come together for one main purpose, one main activity, and that is to be united in one common expression of praise to the Lord, to their God. The priority of God's people must be to worship him together in his presence whenever they gather, to worship him together in his presence whenever they gather. When we come together in the name of the Lord to worship, we don't have to stand around here and wonder what to do next. It's very clear. We come, first and foremost, to praise the Lord. But in verse 3, we start seeing why. I've already talked to you about the who, the where, and the what. Here we start to see why God's people ought to lift their voices in praise. We have every reason to praise the Lord. It tells us why, when we come together to worship, our voices should resound in praise. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name. There it is. It's the word we're looking for, for it is pleasant. So there you see that singing is one of the expected responses in the worship of the Lord by the servants of the Lord. Sing to his name. How shall we sing the Lord's song? Answer with praise. But we also see here really why God's people should sing, why they should praise him. There's three quick reasons here. Even in this initial call, this initial summons to praise, and you can see them, they're marked off by the word for, F-O-R. We sing the Lord's song 
4, first of all, the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. This initially seems like something uh, super basic and super obvious. Of course the Lord is good. But it's a needed reminder, actually in a, in a couple of differing circumstances of life. We get hit by the realities and circumstances of life. When we do, this is a good reminder. We need to remember that God is good, do we not? When life gets tough, and it keeps on getting tougher, we eventually slide into a time of doubt. And it's God's goodness specifically that we start to doubt. How can a good God allow me to suffer like this? And so we need a reminder that God is always good. And if you want another reminder, make sure you read that section before Romans 3 that I talked about, because we also need a reminder sometimes that we are not good, only God is good, and, uh, and, and we are not at all. And so it's good to remember that God is good, even though it might not seem like it at the moment. And friend, I also want to remind you the other end of that. Even if you are in a good season, we need this reminder, because what's the danger when things are starting to go really good in our life. Well, we can forget God, right? And we can start to delight in the circumstances themselves. We forget that God gave those circumstances for us. We can st- and so when life is going along good, when it's going along swimmingly, do not forget to praise a good God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. And then the parallel thought there, just quickly, it says, Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Our praise should center around the fact that we find our greatest pleasure in God. And then he adds this profoundly glorious reason for praise there in verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. Why did God choose them and not someone else? Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 tells us why, kind of. The Lord your God has chosen you, there it is, to be a people for his treasured possession. Actually, the same language here, Psalm 135. He's chosen you to be a people of his, for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people of the Lord that the Lord, or the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's all. There was nothing that they did, or not because they were a great nation that commended them to the Lord. The Lord just sort of sat there and said, well, I want to choose them. They're going to win. No, they were the least. But it was because the Lord loves you, that he loves them, that he chose them. Brothers and sisters, this is really an astounding and stunning thought that God chose you. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen, prized, treasured people by grace, and it was grace in the Old Testament as well that he chose them, as we just saw from Deuteronomy 7. But now we are God's chosen people by grace through faith in Christ. Not through race, not through the 
line that we were born into, but we are God's chosen people by grace through faith in Christ, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. 1 John 4, I think John mentioned this in his prayer. He says, we love him because he first loved us. It's all owing to God's sovereign love. And the only response we're left with then, if we know that to be true, is praise. We must praise him. It's to sing God's praises. So, two overarching reasons to praise God in that first section. One, we praise God for who he is. He is good. And two, we praise God for what he has done. Who he is and what he's done. He has chosen a people for himself. The songwriter takes the next section to expand on those thoughts. The fact that he is good and that he does good. In verse 5, he expands on God's goodness. And then he starts in on all the things that God does. So just for that first section, we could summarize verses 5 to 7 as saying, God invites us to praise his sovereign power. God invites us to praise his sovereign power. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Our God is without compare. He sits above all other so-called gods, but he doesn't just sit there. He does something. He is a living God. He is an act of God, and he's powerful over his creation. This here is an announcement again, declaring that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over any, everything. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. God is not at the whims of any other creature or any other force. God does not react. He does whatever he pleases even going so far as being in control of creation. There's a big discussion going on these days. You might have heard about climate change and how um, if everything is progressing on its current path, we're all going to be in real trouble in 11 years. Unless we somehow take control and collectively intervene on a few things. Scientists say that global warming needs to be kept down to one and a half to two degrees Celsius over the next 11 years or our whole planet is in trouble. The good news, they say, is that we can do it. We can keep it down with a combined effort. One scientist commissioned by the UN, the United Nations, says that this call is is a line in the sand. And what it says to our species is that this is the moment And we must act now in order to prevent a climate change catastrophe. Now, yes, we must admit that as God's people given dominion, we need to be good stewards of the world that God has placed us into for this time. But to say that we can control the changes of the globe's climate, I don't think so. Whatever the Lord pleases... So this is all good. This is according to God's good pleasure. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Exhibit A, climate change. Global climate change. In heaven and on earth. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. 
He it is who makes lightnings for the rain. He it is who brings forth wind from his storehouses. God is active in creation and sovereign in creation, including the climate, and is therefore to be praised by we, his people, his church. The heavens declare the glory of God, yes? We all believe that, right? So let's then unite our voices in praise of God's sovereign power. I know, he says, that the Lord is great. But God's power is not just on a global scale. God uses his power, thankfully, praise God, on a personal and on a corporate level. The God who controls the climate is especially on the side of his people. He is for his people. He is for his church. So in verses 8 to 12, he invites his people to praise his sovereign power on his people, for his people. Look again at verse 8. He it was, so first it says in verse 7, he it is who makes the clouds rise. Now in verse 8, he it was who also, we could add, he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations, who killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. This is important. As a child of God, you need to know that God is for you. And this song aims to prove that by showing how God so acted for his people in bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. God is a warrior. God is our warrior fighting on our behalf. He clears the way for his people. He actually, when it comes to the people of Israel going through the desert, freed from Egypt, he actually took out whatever was in the way in order for his people to get to where he wanted them to go. Look at the action words there. He struck down in verse 8. He sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, verse 9. He struck down nations and kings, verse 10. He killed mighty kings, and he lists a couple of them here. And those particular kings had a reputation for being insurmountable and physically imposing. Sihon was said in Amos to be as tall as the cedars and as mighty as the oaks. But no problem for God. He took them all out, and it was all for his people. Tells us that there in verse 12. He exercised his power as a heritage to his people, Israel. God was clearing the way in spectacular and devastating fashion for his people, for his church. Brothers and sisters, that was all a foretaste of what he would do for you in Jesus He acted to rescue you and deliver you. He acted to take the obstacles away, and there were many, so that you could be saved. He sent Jesus, his only son, into the world in order to save a people unto himself. He devastatingly judged his son and permitted his son to be killed. That shows us the extent of our sin. 
and it shows us the extent of his love. And then he spectacularly raised Jesus from the dead. This is a God who is worthy of our praise. This is a God who exercised his power, the same power he exercises to control the climate and heaven and earth to bring you to himself. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Praise the Lord, for he does good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant, for he has chosen you for himself. And listen, verses 13 and 14 tells us that the same God who acted in history and acted on the cross will act for you. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord, notice the tense here, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. His name, his renown, his reputation precedes him. And he keeps going. He doesn't stop. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His ways of acting in the past endure forever. He is the same God now as he was back then. Same power, same sovereignty, same intent to deliver his people and to clear out the obstacles. The world, you know, might be resistant to the church. The church might be under attack and in danger. But the Lord will vindicate his people. And the, the Lord will have compassion, will have mercy on his servants. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Lord's name endures forever. Praise the Lord. Sing to his name. Verses 15 to 18 then remind us of the futility of worshiping anything other than this God. I hope by this point you go, this God is worthy of our worship, but just in case you don't know yet, he's going to tell us about what is worthless to follow, what is worthless to worship. If God does all that, if God is so powerfully for his people, why would we worship anything else? Why? Yet we do. Yet. We do. Can we all just admit that? We all too frequently, as we sang, are prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God we love. For what? For cheap imitations. And yes, we worship those things. We foolishly give our allegiance to those things. And so we need to be reminded of this contrast and of the futility of worshiping anything less than God. Here is the reminder. Verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They are. Good stuff. Silver, gold, work of human hands. They have mouths. But look at that. They can't speak. They have eyes. Can't see. They got ears. Can't hear. Not only that, there's no breath in their mouths. Then listen, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's the point. God is living and active. Idols are dead and inactive. And here's the warning. What you worship is what you become. What you worship is where you put your faith. 
And why would you put your faith in something other than the Lord? That's the point he's trying to make here. No, we might think we are more sophisticated. We're not carving idols with mouths and eyes and ears. But we are easily prone to put our faith in other things, lesser things. I say that because I know I am prone to do that. Even as churches functioning in the Western world, we can be prone to do that, to be so enamored by the things of the world that we lose our focus on God, and it can even trickle into our worship if we're not careful. Focus on professionalism rather than on purity. Focus on smoothness rather than on holiness. Focus on levity, casualness, rather than on gravity. So let's heed this warning. Well, the psalm ends as it started, with a call to bless the Lord. But now, having already sung what we've sung, having been reminded of who God is and what he's done and what he is doing, we must bless the Lord. For us today, having been reminded of what the Lord has done in his death as we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we must bless the Lord. And so the songwriter here as he closes summons everyone together for the finale. Here it is. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. This is kind of like antiphonal singing in the congregation here. You who fear the Lord, Bless the Lord. Everybody. Everybody bless the Lord. All of God's people. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Church of the living God. Let me ask you. How shall we sing the Lord's song? Answer. With praise. With praise. So I'm going to ask Shar to come. There are so many praise, songs of praise that we could sing to close, but there's only so many that I can do by myself up here. So, we're going to sing the doxology as our closing prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. We're going to sing it once with sharp playing, and then we'll sing it again using just our voices. So I invite you to stand, and let's sing Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. our voices. If you can sing harmony, go for it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly be it. Amen. Praise the Lord. You're dismissed.